0: You're listening to Dancing Around Elephants, a podcast that talks to dancers about the elephant in the room, dance injuries. I'm Dr. Danelle Dixon, a dancer turned physical therapist, and I currently work with dancers to work past their challenges and access the next level in their dance careers. I'm sitting down to talk with dancers about their journey, their injuries, and how they have successfully navigated past the elephant in the room. But I'm going a bit further. I want to talk about all the elephants in the dance room and shed some light on the things that affect many dancers that we seldom talk about. My goal is to change the way that we approach injuries and issues in the dance community, and it all starts with a conversation. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Danelle Dixon. This is Dancing Around Elephants, and this is a very, very unique and different episode. We have with us the amazing Miss Casa Pancho from Ballet Black based in London. And the reason why we are doing this episode today is because for the Dance Ready Project, we wanted to highlight choreographers dancers, movers and shakers in the dance world to talk about Black History Month and talk about innovation within the industry, within the dance industry that is affecting and uplifting minorities. And in doing our research, Ms. Poncho was someone that came up that was inevitably a must in order to reach out to and to have a conversation with because of the amazing work that she has done. So I want to welcome Ms. Poncho Casa. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so Tassa, please tell me about yourself and how you came into dancing.
1: So my parents enrolled me in a local ballet class at the age of two and a half. Mm-hmm. And I really hated it. And I would cry if they tried to leave me there. And I think I did that for a really long time. I was the annoying child that clung to the teacher's assistant and I did that for a really long time, and then I started to really like it, so I would cry when my parents came to pick me up, so I was a real pain in the butt, whichever way you look at it, and Mm -hmm. that is how I got into ballet.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's awesome, that's awesome. Tell me about your breakthrough moment as a dancer. How did that um, evolve for you, or what was your, your general experience as a dancer?
1: Well, my dance career was perhaps a bit unusual compared to other dancers in that when I left dance school, I started Ballet Black. So Mm -hmm. I was a new graduate and a director sort of, Mm -hmm. and also a dancer. And for me, what I consider a breakthrough moment in my dance career is being on stage, waiting for the performance to begin and an usher coming up to me. So came round to the backstage area, came onto the stage when the curtain was still closed and was asking about something to do with the box office. And I remember just thinking, oh, I cannot be a dancer and be in charge of everything that's going on Mm -hmm. uh, behind the scenes because I I can't even understand this man's question because I'm so nervous about the show about to begin as a performer. And that for me was a moment when I realized it's time to stop dancing because this is not your passion behind the scenes and directing is what you actually want to do and I was really just there to make up numbers in the company because we didn't have enough cash to pay enough women at that time
0: yeah wow tell me more about the behind the scenes what things behind the scenes really pulled you in in terms of going in that direction
1: when I was at ballet school I had done a year and then I had a really bad back injury that meant I had to stop for two years Mm -hmm. and I was in a back brace for two years And I really lost, physically, I lost a lot of flexibility because I couldn't really do much for two years. And mentally, I just really lost any desire to be um, the center of dance attention. Didn't really want to be on stage doing stuff. I got much more interested in how a performance runs. I, you know, stage managed a couple of the school performances while I wasn't able to dance. And I got much more into the aspects that made up a show, like the choreography, the lighting design, how you make a flyer for a performance and all of that kind of stuff. So when I went back to school and finished my final two years, I was, I was older than everybody else because I had two years. And I just didn't have that passion to be the best ballerina in the world, like, like my classmates. So it was never a burning desire for me but I was always curious about what made the show happen.
0: Wow, that's pretty interesting. And that's such an, an, a departure from a lot of different dancers, right? A lot of dancers are dying to be in the spotlight for as long as possible. And you, you pivoted very, very early, which guys I think is a, very much an indication of how much of a trailblazer this woman is. So tell me more about your achievements. What achievements in dance would you say have directed your career on and off stage?
1: Well, I don't think I really think about achievements as much as what I think has directed my career has been turning up every day,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: whether I want to or not. (laughs) Whether I'm turning up for something that I'm looking forward to or I'm dreading, it's always been something that I do is I will show up. Yeah. So, you know, if everyone around me is having a terrible fit about something, Even if I really want to do that, I can't because I'm in charge. So I think that that has been my achievement as an individual is to just keep turning up (laughs) because there have been many times when I really haven't wanted to. Mm -hmm. And there are times when it's really easy to to show up, you know, when someone's praising you or something's going really well, those are really easy. But it's the difficult times and also just the regular boring days in between when you're just rehearsing the same thing over and over again, when you maybe aren't achieving anything tangible but with each day you are making a tiny little improvement but sometimes when you're in the midst it's really hard to see that all these days add up to something that's going to be good hopefully
0: (laughs) no that's awesome what would you say was your motivation to show up every day because that's Mm -hmm. really hard for a lot of people you know really maintaining that motivation Mm -hmm. so what would you say was one of your motivations to move forward every day
1: I Mm, that's a good question I think a sense of responsibility because I started Ballet Black nobody asked me to (laughs) and (laughs) you know it's sort of my baby and if I don't look after my baby then (laughs) what will happen to it and it's no one else's responsibility and I think that's probably uh, might sound boring but that's I think that's why because it's it's my responsibility and my duty to the people that have chosen to come and work here
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So let's go to Ballet Black. Tell us about the inspiration behind creating Ballet Black.
1: So in those two years off, when I had hurt my back, I was thinking about my return to dance school and knowing that I would need to write a dissertation about something and that it would take the entire third year, the the entire final year Mm -hmm. to, to do the research. And my classmates were all looking at Pilates and the ballet dancer diet and the ballet dancer, gyrotonic and the ballet dancer. And I just thought, I can't do that for a year. I'll just go insane with boredom. <laughs> <laughs> and I, as a dual heritage person was always very aware once I got to professional dance school, that the environment was entirely Caucasian, even though I, and mixed race, I am extremely white passing. So people who meet me don't necessarily know what I am when they meet me. Mm -hmm. So I would also be privy to hearing certain things from staff or just people in the ballet world about why Black people weren't doing ballet, couldn't do ballet, or why a certain Black student in the room wouldn't be very good. And um, thinking hmm, if I were a few shades darker or my hair was curlier, would you be saying that to me?
0: Mm, that's and, so interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was kind of like a spy without realizing I was a spy. And uh-huh. that led me to, to ask the question, where are the Black women in British ballet?
0: Mm.
1: And this was, you know, in 1998, 99, when I was considering doing this topic so we didn't have youtube much internet access in those days instagram nothing the closest i could get to seeing black dancers was an old vhs tape of dance theater of harlem doing creole giselle which was in our library yeah and i thought i'll go and interview five black women in british ballet and see what they've gone through what their experiences and challenges were and there were no women working in no black women working in British ballet.
0: Wow! And do you mean no women working in the professional realm, or no women at all
1: in ballet? None at
0: all. Wow! This is in 1999. Mm-hmm. Whoa, that's crazy. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So I rephrase the question: Where are the black women um, mm-hmm. in British ballet, and what what is stopping these people? from existing in ballet is it is it as people are telling me black people have no interest in the ballet culture and i'm like well i've been enrolled in ballet by my caribbean father so there's one strike against that i personally know someone that sent me to ballet even though i didn't want to go dance here to harlem exists so there's an entire company which you know was in the days when it was i think 30 or more dancers so it was a really big enterprise and of course arthur mitchell and and many american black dancers that that i came to learn about through through doing my research like janet collins and raven wilkinson and and you know these things all predate misty who now when anyone says is well there's misty copeland you know what are you talking about there's no black dancers and they go well yes now misty copeland is has a platform that makes her very well known but in 1999 I god i don't know how she would have been very very young and so no none of these things were accessible to us right and also some of them just didn't exist right and so I looked at lots of different things I interviewed the the very few black dancers I could get my hands on in the UK in terms of classical ballet and they were men
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I interviewed some black women who were in contemporary dance I interviewed some ballet teachers and looked at things like the marketing that schools would put out so there'd be a beautiful picture of a black kid on the brochure and then you look at the class and there are no black kids in the class but you know Great. to get funding and kudos and brownie points or whatever they would feature dancers and kids of color but the reality wasn't actually translating to the physical classes
0: wow so,
1: so it may you know i asked the question why would black parents want to send their kids to ballet if the teacher is white all the kids in the school are white all the posters and everything around them feature Caucasian people. why would you want to send your precious three-year-olds off to a class where they may be the only black kid in the room? Yeah yeah
0: that is such whoa, that you've you said so many important points there and I think I think I think the thing that stands out for me is why would you want to send your child to a class where she's the only black person in the room but unfortunately this is a reality for So many Black women and men, or, you know, kids also, in terms of their experience, not just in the performing arts world, but just all around, you know, in terms of access of things that are better, you know, in terms of better education, better exposure, better exposure to arts, science, math, you know, IT, all of these things, they're usually the only person in the room you know, if at all, they are in the yeah. room, you know? So it's 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 so, it's so interesting that you were able to dial into that thought process because that is one of the sentiments that prevents minorities from actually participating when they don't see representation. And that is something that I think we're going to look back to because it becomes so important, I think, in your work. So Kasa, tell me a bit about what are the obstacles? You know, you had this thought and this concept of like, we, we need to create a space for brown black and asian bodies in terms of creating ballet black tell me what year it was created
1: so the company was founded in 2001 okay so
0: you guys have been around for quite a while it's safe to say that you guys are maybe veterans in the field at this point tell me more about the obstacles that you encountered in terms of creating the company like what obstacles did you face what pushback did you have tell me about that experience
1: Wow. Well, so in the UK, unlike America, where I feel that there are so many ballet companies, I couldn't couldn't name them all. Mm-hmm. In the UK, we have five ballet companies. They're all big. They're all very well funded. In my opinion, they are. I'm sure in their opinion, relative to the scale, maybe they're not. Mm-hmm. And they, I think, were all founded by well known dancers or choreographers or people who were well-known in their time. Mm -hmm. And so Ballet Black was unique. We were, first of all, in those days, I think this is different to the US, in the UK, we did not do pickup companies for classical ballet. So you were either in a big ballet company or you were not. Yeah. So that was very unusual. So a, a company of eight dancers was a very odd, thing in classical ballet. Everybody in it was black, brown or Asian. Mm -hmm. That was very odd. And Mm -hmm. it was started by a complete nobody, me. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew who I was, rightly so, because I had only just left school. Mm -hmm. So in every way, it was an, an anomaly in the British ballet world. And this meant, in some ways, as, as a benefit to Ballet Black, we went completely under the radar for a few years because nobody cared what we were doing. It was really tiny. It, I think, was not taken very seriously by those who did know that we existed and was, in my opinion, never considered a serious contender in the world of classical ballet.
0: Wow. Wow. How, how do you think, the ob- what obstacles did you face in terms of curating bodies of work? You know, because with most, as you said, most classical ballet companies, they are curated by choreographers, you know, so they have this, this heavyweight in the background that is putting together the autistic work. And for you, you just got out of school, you know. Mm-hmm. So how, how did that work out?
1: Well, in some ways, I think the complete lack of knowledge about anything helped me to just do it because I didn't know any better. And perhaps if I had spent 10 years in someone else's company, I would have learned my place in the ballet hierarchy, which would be at the bottom, <laughs> probably in the court of ballet, and I wouldn't have done it because I would have known my place. But I didn't know my place. So that was good for ballet black. And initially I choreographed one of the first things I did was arrange a ballet class and I asked my friend Denzel Bailey who had just retired from English National Ballet Mm -hmm. and he was one of the first Black dancers there I asked him to come and teach a class so already the person leading that room was Black which just changed the power structure in the room immediately and it meant that all these Black dancers some good some bad professional not professional from different Uh, disciplines, musical theater, wherever, they they came to this class because they wanted to be taught by somebody excellent in ballet who looked like them. And not just people, we had people of all different colors come, but it just made the dynamic shift. And it meant that there was not one person there who was the only face in the room that looked a certain way.
0: That is awesome. That is brilliant. And, and that as a former dancer, I can't claim being a dancer now, but as a former dancer, there's so much power in that, you know, I grew up in the Caribbean. So, you know, doing, you know, classical ballet in the Caribbean, a lot of my teachers didn't look like me. And I mean, by by identity, we were all Trinidadians. So it didn't translate as much as a, as a little girl. But as I got older, you notice that you start looking around a room for faces that look like you and bodies that look like you, specifically in an art form that is so um, concentrated on the the aesthetics, how it looks. Mm -hmm. You know, so as I got older, it became really important to be like, well, who else around here looks like me? Mm -hmm. Who who else out there is skinny and has, you know, long legs and a tiny body and a big butt? Like who else is out there? And, you know, and it became really important. And I found myself, even without realizing it gravitating to those bodies and to those people and what experiences have they had? What did they learn? Okay. I want to learn that, you know? So being intuitive enough at that age, without the experience of being in your place in the ballet world and knowing enough to say you, we need this representation physically in the, in the classroom is genius. My, my humble two cents, but thank you for sharing that. So from inception to execution in terms of ballet black you said you were under the radar for a couple of years when was the first big debut when did when did ballet black really kind of you know exert its presence on the british ballet scene
1: so we had done a lot within our own community so we had Mm -hmm. plenty of sellout performances but all people that knew us and not necessarily the wider ballet world Mm -hmm. but i met a wonderful woman called Deborah Bull in, I think I met her in 2003 and she was just retiring as a principal ballerina of the Royal Ballet Mm -hmm. and about to take over some space within the Royal Opera House that had been newly built. So there's the massive main stage at the Opera House, which is where the opera and the ballet company perform. And then they had built two smaller spaces, a Limbury theater, which I think is now 500 seats and a smaller space that has about, I think 200 seats called the Claw Studio. And they, the Opera House had had hired Deborah to be the director of those spaces and to bring new work and other kinds of dance into the building. So it wasn't just classical ballet and, and the opera. And I managed to get an email to her she said come in let's talk about Ballet Black and I explained what we were doing and she really liked the idea and said you know if you're struggling with paying for studio which I was move everything here to the Opera House at the weekends because the Royal Ballet don't use the space at the weekends and we've got some really nice studios and I was taken to the studios and I thought Someone had taken me to the wrong place because these studios are the size of the main stage to fit wow. the entire company. And I was like, no, there's only eight of us. We don't <laughs> need this. We can go some, to a small studio. And they said, no, they're all, they're actually all like this. So mm-hmm. that was a real defining moment for Ballet Black because once we moved our, those open classes and our rehearsals to the Opera House, it really made the rest of the ballet world notice us because with the name the royal opera house attached to something in this country it's you know quite a big deal and we we, through deborah we were able to put on performances in the limbury space and start to commission some choreographers outside of my sort of friendship colleague circle Mm -hmm. and the first person we commissioned was a British choreographer called Liam Scarlett, who's one of the first people outside of our, you know, immediate group. Mm-hmm. And that brought the critics along to see mm-hmm. out And then from there, we, uh, well, I kept programming more and more new dance because, one, we needed it because we couldn't be doing Swan Lake and Giselle with only eight dancers. And we were also in the same city as English National Ballet and the Royal Ballet. Why would we even try to compete on a mini scale? Just right. didn't make sense as a product to mm-hmm. sell. And also, at that time in the UK, people were not commissioning new ballet. So we became a place where, if you really wanted to make work and you were an up-and-coming choreographer, you couldn't really get your ballet seen anywhere because everyone was doing the big classic work. Right. Ballet Black, even if you weren't bothered about the mission of Ballet Black, it was still somewhere you might be able to get your work stage. So it helped us become known as a commissioner of new work as well as a ballet company for dancers of color. And so it started to become something in reviews that everybody always mentions the race thing, always in reviews. I don't think we'll ever get away from that. But then the rest of the review would be about the new work rather than this is a black company, why do they exist? are they as good as right. white dancers, that kind right. of thing.
0: So really, so it seems really quickly you started to achieve your goal, to disprove that, that thesis that you had in school of where the black ballet dancers, is it because they are not interested in ballet? Is it because they're not capable of, you know, producing amazing art forms such as your white counterparts? And really quickly in a relatively short space of time, you were able to disprove that, which is awesome.
1: Well, the thing is, Arthur Mitchell had already done all that work, you know, mm-hmm. a long time ago and many other, mostly American, but, you know, some British people, in the some men in the UK and, and a couple of women and some American dancers that came here. So it had already been done. So it's frustrating in a way to have to keep disproving something that had already been categorically disproved by Arthur Mitchell and Dance Theatre of Harlem in oh. you know, 68 so it was almost it was like we needed to despite the fact that dance of harlem used to come to the uk to tour Mm -hmm. we still had to do that work Mm -hmm. Yes. when i might say you know where where's the space for black dancers people would say well they should go to dance Theatre of harlem it's like well do you think that all black dancers should all go to one company and just stay there forever what about if you want to be an artist and and you love the repertoire of a company in holland or america or france can't you go to the company that best suits your artistic soul and your skill do you have to go to the company that suits your that matches your skin color
0: yeah yeah, so I so I think to your point, yes, Arthur Michel had already disproved it. He had already opened the door. He didn't he didn't break down all of the walls though. And I think there's constant work that needs to be done, not just in the dance industry, of course, but everywhere to prove that, you know, people of color have a place. And that comes with constant reminders of, hey, there's this anomaly that is actually the norm hey, there's this place where dancers can go. Let's create space, let's create doors, and let's create opportunities where they can shine just as much as their Caucasian counterparts. So yes, Arthur Mitchell may may have disproved it, but I think you're continuing very important work of constantly saying, hey, no, you have to rewire and rethink how you look at this issue you know it's very different and it's not enough that one time you know solves the problem you yeah we're looking for way bigger changes in yeah. the industry in terms that are way more long lasting than just one ballet black you know we need yeah. more yeah. you know so that's awesome so taking a step back casa and looking at the 360 of this scenario we have a lot of dynamics to really consider All of the dynamics that would really play into the conversation about ballet is so varied and so nuanced. Right now, as we're recording, it's February and it's Black History Month. So this is a relevant conversation to be had right now, but we also have so many things that are going on in the U.S. as it stands. Even outside of Black History Month, as you mentioned, with the whole Black Lives Matter thing that happened last year. My experience in the U.S. has been pretty interesting because I grew up in Trinidad. Mm. So a lot of the things that is happening has been very new to me. Mm. And I, I have been in what I call an immigrant's bubble,
1: which mm-hmm.
0: is I'm here, but I'm not quite here. Yeah. You know? So when everything happened, it really hit me hard. And it really made me a lot more passionate about my entire environment from top to bottom where I live, who I work with, you know, the patients that I see as a physical therapist, the dancers that I see, you know, inequities that I see in patients by race, by sex, by class, you know, it just made me very hyper aware of it. And I think in in a weird way, it was a pressure cooker to just create this mini activist that I didn't, that you know, is so far from my initial identity, it's just weird, but it's so intuitive now, because this is exactly who I am, you know, I'm a minority woman in a very male dominated orthopedic world in the US that's very racially biased. There's no option to me but to be an advocate for myself, you know, and everyone that looks like me. So in terms of, you know, translating those thoughts and those passions into dance, You have echoed so many sentiments that we, that in the dance world among minority dancers, we talk about all the time, but there's no platform. There's no people that are really actively talking about it. That's actively addressing it. Even this morning, I read an article where they were talking about, it was in a point magazine where they're talking about broken artists produce broken art forms and they continue to be broken teachers and they create Broken dancers, that cycle continues. And uh, race is all intertwined in that. God, you know? So much. So it, much. It, it's crazy how bad pedagogy is passed down mm-hmm. just by tradition, you mm-hmm. know? And the uh, work that you've done, and I know you've probably heard it a million times and sick to death of it, but I I cannot skip the opportunity to say it again. The work that you're doing is so important. And, and even, you know, growing up in Trinidad, the idea of representation never crossed my mind because we have representation even in Trinidad they don't have it here and Um, and it's it's mind-boggling for me to think how I would have grown up if I had not grown up in Trinidad with that representation it's weird
1: there are 20 dancers of black of some form of blackness where they are black mixed race or whatever there are only 20 Mm -hmm. working in ballet today if you take out the ballet black dancers because I feel Mm -hmm. like that skews it because the company is for black dancers. So if you t- take mm. us out the five big ballet companies, there are 10, 20 black dancers, 10 of them are British. And then often I get a lot of pushback from black people in the world, particularly in America for speaking about it because I look like this.
0: Yeah. and mm. and. And I think that's the beauty of what the work that you're doing also, you know, which is why I thought your personal story was so important. And I really wanted to touch on that because the, the, the connection of your personal story to the mission that you're pushing makes people understand the why. Because other than that, the, the reality is, you know, there is an the issue of colorism that, that happens in the range of racism. They, mm-hmm. are, they are cousins. And there are lots of people that would think, well, why is, this, oh, why is this white woman? She's white. Why can't there be a black woman that's in charge of ballet black CEO? Oh, it, it's, it's one more thing to distract from the mission. And uh, I can imagine that you would have gotten a lot of pushback. You know, when I saw your photo, I'm like, this is interesting. <laughs> you know, only until I read that you were from, you know, half of your lunches interest sure. I'm like, this makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's when it clicked for me. And as much as it's difficult to reduce people to skin tone, we do it all the time. Yeah. We do it. We, we do it effortlessly.
1: The assumptions that come again. with that is crazy. Yeah. You know, we try in the ballet world at least to stop doing it to ourselves because it's yeah. happening to us from outside. Yes. We just have to kind of go, okay, I get that you're super dark or you're super light, it's all okay. We'll fight about that later because <laughs> yes. right now we have to deal with the wider ballet yes. world. And that's all Caucasian. And it's all, whether they're aware of it or not, it's always pitted against Blackness. Yes. Because it comes with a preconceived idea about what the Black body can do or should do. Yeah. You know, um, god we could talk for six more hours about that but yeah that's why it's tough when you know I see people write things that misty's not dark enough to really re- truly represent blah 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 and I just think god damn it shut up
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's true because we're like like what is good enough because that that's where now even in our fight to achieve representation we're still putting conditions of what success looks like like what like can we just get started? Yeah. And can we evolve as we, as we enter that door, we enter the room, can we just evolve in terms of the ranges and the shades and, and, and the depth and breadth of what the monolith of Blackness looks like? Because yeah. Blackness is not one thing. You know, the, Af- the Black diaspora, African diaspora is so varied and so influenced. Mm-hmm. You know, someone from Brazil is gonna look completely different for, to yeah. someone in the UK. Is still black, you know. Yeah. Also, within that struggle, we have all of these nuances, you know, that can quickly get sidetracked into, well, she's not black enough, or she's not light-skinned enough, and we have to keep pushing back against that because it doesn't serve the mission. It doesn't. My two cents doesn't serve the no, mission.
1: I, I'm in complete agreement. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I've learned that because ballet black has American, Brazilian, Japanese, South African, French, and British. Dancers at the moment, and it's always been very multinational. Mm-hmm. I mean, since almost day one of Ballet Black, we've had so many different nationalities, and it it is always been a thing that because we all have one bit of black DNA in us doesn't mean we're all the same. Yeah, we're all yeah. very different. Like you would never lump all white people into one category.
0: Hey guys, so this wraps up part one of my interview with Casa Pancho. This is such a dynamic conversation, guys. It's really rich, it's really deep, and there's so many moving parts and so much to digest and to dissect. So I hope you're enjoying it as much as I did. Please stay tuned for part two, where I continue this conversation with Casa, and we talk more about Bally Black and her future endeavors as she moves forward. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Dancing Around Elephants. I would love if you can share this podcast and leave a review. People that leave reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms that take just 60 to 90 seconds to show some love and give context to others about why this conversation is important, means the world. Thank you in advance, I appreciate you. Do you want resources to start becoming the best dancer that you can be? click on the link and access Dr. D's Dance Toolbox. So many amazing tools, including my signature program, DanceBridge Online, to get you bulletproof from dance injuries. Also, if you know of a dancer that you'd like me to interview for this podcast, shoot me a message at info at 3ptdc.com and share your thoughts. Catch you
1: next time.